listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me today is my co-host, Michelle Jewell Shaw of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses and Seashells Photography. Today, instead of coming to you from the almost famous Bluefish Boulevard recording studio in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, like we would normally do, we are recording over the phone because we're in the age of social distancing. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy. Hope you're well today, as well as all of the listeners out there, too. Yeah, I'm doing very well, and I hope you are also, Michelle. I am. Thank you. Good. We are recording this uh, in mid-April, but this episode of Lighthearted will be released on Memorial Day weekend, which traditionally marks the start of the summer season. It also marks the beginning of the tourist season for lots of lighthouse organizations. This year is uh, obviously different. At the time we're recording this, we know that the start of our open house season at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse will probably be delayed. The same thing is happening at many other lighthouses around the country, probably in other countries as well. We don't know for sure what's going to happen, but we wish uh, all the best to um, all of our friends in the lighthouse world in these difficult times. We're all in the same boat, and we will get past this. We want everyone to stay well and to hang in there. Michelle, do you have some thoughts about Memorial Day? Well, yes, I do, Jeremy. Memorial Day grew out of various traditions around the country and was eventually extended to honor all Americans who died while in the U.S. military service. It became a federal holiday in 1967, and it was moved to the last Monday in May in 1971. The Lighthouse Service wasn't considered one of the armed forces, but quite a few civilian keepers on lighthouses and lightships died in service before the Coast Guard took over the management of our navigation system in 1939. It seems appropriate that we should also remember them today, along with the military personnel who died in service. Thank you, Michelle. I I definitely agree with that. On today's episode of Lighthearted, we are going to go up the main coast a couple of hours from here to one of the prettiest island light stations in New England, Burnt Island. Uh, in Booth Bay Harbor. Our guest today is Elaine Jones, Education Director for the Maine Department of Marine Resources and the Director of the Educational Programs at Burnt Island for the past 22 years. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Burnt Island and Elaine Jones. Of course, Jeremy. The area known as Booth Bay in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, was a center for shipbuilding, grist mills, and fishing in the 1700s. In 1764, local mariners and merchants petitioned the government for a lighthouse on Damaris Cove Island, five miles south of what is now Booth Bay Harbor. Damaris Cove Island never got its lighthouse, and soon the revolution and the War of 1812 slowed the local economy. Coastal trade and fishing were again on the rise by 1820. On March 3, 1821, Congress appropriated $10,500 for three lighthouses on the main coast, one of them on five-acre Burnt Island at the west side of the entrance to Booth Bay Harbor. The rubblestone tower, 20 feet tall to the base of the lantern, was accompanied by a small keeper's house, also constructed of stone. The light went into service in November 1821. A new lantern and a fourth-order Fresnel lens were installed in 1856. In 1857, the original 
dwelling was torn down and replaced by the wood frame cottage that still stands today. A fog bell tower and a 1,029 pound bell with automatic striking machinery were added in 1895. Joseph Muse, who was originally from Nova Scotia, moved to the island as keeper in 1936 with his wife Annie and their four children with another on the way. Muse had previously been stationed at four remote main island light stations. The Muse family lived on Burnt Island until 1951 and the children always found plenty of entertainment. With no chickens to occupy it, a chicken coop became a playhouse. Swimming, fishing, and beachcombing were favorite pastimes for the children of Keeper Muse. Willard Muse later described the annual Christmas time visits of the Flying Santa, either Bill Winkapaw or Edward Rosnow, who would fly over the island to drop presents for their family. They would all run out and wave at the plane. There was always good food, too. When the children woke up to the smell of lobsters cooking and biscuits baking, they knew that a local lobsterman had repaid their father for some kindness with a bunch of lobsters. In 1962, Burnt Island Light became the last lighthouse in New England to be converted from kerosene to electricity. In 1988, Burnt Island became one of the last main light stations to be automated and de-staffed. The last keeper was Henry Sieg, who moved to the station with his wife Jean in 1983. The Sieg's had two children born on the mainland during their stay. In 1998, as part of the Main Lights program, the Maine Lighthouse Selection Committee approved the transfer of Burnt Island Light to the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Elaine Jones, a native of Auburn, Maine, who has been Education Director for the Maine Department of Marine Resources since 1991, had previously developed the Maine State Aquarium in Booth Bay Harbor. Elaine was named the director of the new facility when the state acquired the Burnt Island Light Station. It was her vision to transform the island into an outstanding educational and recreational facility for Maine's residents and its visitors. Elaine's extensive research provided a clear picture of Burnt Island's history and a path for its future. The year 1950 was chosen for restoration after securing architectural drawings, historic photographs, and accounts of the island's keepers and families. By 2003, the inside of the tower and keeper's dwelling were ready for tours, while the manicured grounds and scenic trails welcomed all who came ashore. The light station is open seasonally with public tours offered in July and August, but there will be no tours this season due to planned restoration projects. There are special offerings for teachers and school children, including overnight programs. A unique aspect of the tours is the Living History Program, where interpreters in period costume teach about the life and times of Keeper Joseph Muse and his family. Elaine Jones has been honored with the 2019 Keeper of the Light Award by the American Lighthouse Foundation and a 2016 Visionary Award by the Gulf of Maine Council on the Marine Environment. I had the opportunity to speak with Elaine Jones in February. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am on the phone with Elaine Jones, and Elaine, uh, you and I have known each other for quite a few years. How are you doing, Elaine? Good to talk to I'm, you. I'm doing well, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you as well. Well, thank you. Before we talk about Burns Island Lighthouse, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background and what led you to become the Education Director of the Maine Department of Marine Resources. I believe you had a background in biology and marine science, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, my degree was in biology, but I also 
uh, got certified in teaching, secondary education. So when I graduated, I was able to go either route, and I decided I'd better start with teaching because I better get some experience there right out of the gate. And so I taught for four years. Then I stayed home with children for eight, and then uh, this position at the department opened up uh, in 1991, and um, I applied for it, and I became the education director at that time. I had an affiliation with the department since since 1976, when I was a summer intern there, so I spent four summers. So I was able to meet a lot of people, and fortunately for me, they were still employed. Um, so I, I guess I made an impression while there as an intern, and uh, they hired me for this position. Ah, okay. I don't think I knew about the internship part of it. Uh, so in your role with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, you developed the Maine State Aquarium in Booth Bay Harbor. Uh, could you tell our listeners about what that is? Sure. The Department of Marine Resources is a state agency that oversees um, commercial and recreational fisheries for the state of Maine. They've always had an aquarium at the Booth Bay Harbor site. Well, not always, but they opened as a, first as a federal lobster hatchery at that site in 1905. And in 1915, um, they built a little exhibit for the public to be able to see what they were doing there. So that aquarium ran for a number of years, um, and in 1992-93, they built a whole new facility. And at that point, they built the shell of an aquarium, but they had no money, no plans, and nobody to oversee that piece of it. So as the education director, they passed it off to me. And in the long run, I can basically say, it was a godsend because it really is what made my career just so enjoyable and uh, so productive as I've had great projects affiliated with the aquarium first and then Burnt Island. And were lighthouses on your radar back then? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering when lighthouses kind of uh, entered your consciousness, basically. Uh, were lighthouses on your radar before you became involved with Burnt Island? No, not at all. Um, I mean, I, as a tourist, had, you know, visited Portland Head and Bass Harbor, Owl's Head, you know, a few of those along the coast that were, you know, I knew were really scenic places and I brought my children to. But as far as being a lighthouse fanatic at that time, no, not at all. And could you tell us about how you became involved with Burnt Island? I understand you became involved with the Maine Lights Program in 1996. Could you tell us about what happened at that time? Sure. There was an evening in, I think it was July in 1996. I happened to be watching the news that night, and that didn't happen very often because I had three young children. <laughs> um, and they announced the Maine Lights Program. And... My job with the department had to, uh, one component of it was teaching teachers, doing recertification courses for teachers. And I could never find a place for them to stay. Booth Bay Harbor was very expensive, and every place I went that was really good coastal places, I just, we couldn't afford it. And so when this announcement came up that, wow, there's going to be these, it was 32 lighthouses that were offered. It, it just, the light bulb went on. 
I said, what better place to teach teachers or the public or school kids but at a lighthouse? I took the name down. Peter Ralston of the Island Institute was being interviewed. I didn't know Peter at that time, so I quickly wrote his name down. Back then, I went to the phone, called the operator, and said, Peter Ralston in Rockland, Maine, and they connected me to Peter. Well, um, they were celebrating. He was having a party because he, too, was watching this announcement on the television. And he said, look, why don't you call me on Monday? He said, we'll talk more about it then. So I said, okay. So I called him on Monday. And he said, why don't you go out and look at Burnt Island because you're in, in Booth Bay Harbor? Mm-hmm. And my reaction was, an island? You know, that's not, that did not come into play as far as I was concerned. It was like something on the mainland where you could easily get to, et cetera, et cetera. So he says, yeah. He said, go out to Burnt Island. And I said, okay. So I got a skiff, and um, another person and I, we went out to the island, brought it up onto the boat slip, and I stepped off that boat and started walking, and I fell in love. I never thought I could fall in love with an island, (laughs) and it happened. The houses had been boarded up, you know, for 10 years, but the island itself had every educational component that a teacher would dream about, and the rocky shore was there, the beach was there, the mudflat was there, um, the meadow, the forest, it, it was all right there on five acres, and only a mile and a half from the DMR lab where I was stationed in the summertime. So that was it for me. This <laughs> history. Yeah. Uh, having been there a few times, I can picture that walk you're talking about, and I completely understand how you can fall in love with that place. And uh, it is it is definitely one of the most picturesque uh, island light stations on the New England coast. There's no doubt about that. So once the DMR uh, was convinced to take on Burnt Island. Could you tell us about how the effort uh, was launched to restore the Burnt Island Light Station and start the uh, the educational programs that you started there? Sure. Um, the convincing part was, uh, uh, I would just say, <laughs> I don't know how to word that exactly, but they didn't want to take on extra properties. They didn't want to take on boats, and the administrators don't like doing things like that. And so... I worked very hard um, as to how I was going to approach them with this, and I did, and I was successful, and I think it was only because I had been successful building an aquarium with no money, no plans, no nothing, that they trusted that I could probably handle this as well. And I brought out the deputy commissioner. There was a, a somebody from the federal government that was visiting the DMR at that time, and he came out too. And he kind of encouraged the deputy and said, why don't you try it? If she's willing and you know she's able, why don't you try it? And so that's what occurred. So I did take it on. I did, in my mind, then develop the programs that I wanted, which first I needed to get an operational site. You know, there was no water, no septic, uh, no heat, no nothing out there. And so that took some grant writing and some convincing of donors to come on board um, that this was worth 
this was worth the fight. And how was it decided uh, that you would restore the place to 1950 as the era to, to concentrate on? Well, I knew that everything had to be done according to historic standards. And if you were going to change anything, uh, that you had to pick a period of time. So I had done my research. I'd been to Washington, D.C. twice, to the archives, to the Coast Guard historian, to the cardiographic branch. I had been to the uh, New England um, archives in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts. I'd been to the civil engineering unit in Providence, to Boston. I'd been in Maine and as many places I could go. Any repository that might have something on Burnt Island, I went. Um, I also was successful in finding 14 former keepers or the families of those keepers. And uh, that was amazing because I could now get their personal stories and their, their personal photographs. Um, so that was really good. But, okay, so why did I choose 1950? Because I found the best documentation. Um, it was the civil engineering unit in Providence that did it for me. They had a drawing there that was October 1950. It had both external and internal architectural sketches of the station at that time. There also within their um, files, I found some negatives. Uh, and I asked them, could I please borrow these and, and get them printed up? When they were printed, there was, I think, about 14 or 15 photos. Uh, the calendar on the kitchen wall said August 1950. So now I had internal, external photographs of the station, an architectural drawing of 1950. I had everything I needed to give the State Historic Preservation Officer to proceed. And I then also found the family who had lived there, which was the Muse family. Yeah. And so they came back in 1999 to visit me, and it had been almost 50 years since they'd been there. And with their stories, that clinched the deal. I knew it was going to be 1950. Right. They were there for, for how long? When did they first get out there? They were there for 15 years. They got there from 36, 1936 to 1951. Right. And, of course, uh, one of the really unique things about uh, the tours uh, that you've had for quite a few years now at Burnt Island is the emphasis on living history. And, of course, the, the family of Keeper Joseph Muse, Joseph Muse himself and his family are portrayed in the Living History Tours. So the, Joseph Muse has been such an important person in the history of that station and continues to be an important person at Burnt Island. What inspired you to develop the Living History Program? Obviously, the Muse family had a lot to do with the inspiration of that. Yes, they did. But prior to that, there were two things. Uh, one, I had visited a lighthouse keeper's dwelling um, in Maine, and I went into it, and it was a museum, and I could have been in the middle of New York City. Uh, it was not what I had expected. I expected going into this historic building. I was going to see what it looked like at a certain time, and so I was disappointed with that, and I never forgot that, um, and then the second piece was... I, we went on a family vacation to Nova Scotia, and we visited the, uh, the Halifax, the Citadel there at Halifax. My children were young, um, and being, you know, 8, 10, 12, or something like that. Bringing them to museums, um, they didn't always interest them. But when we got there, they did a reenactment at the fort 
Well, it captivated them. They were so into it um, that I thought, wow, look at this. They're learning something and they're having fun at the same time. Um, this really works. And so when Burnt Island then came into my life, I just remembered that. I said, I got to entertain and educate. People are on vacation or kids are coming through and they'd love to be entertained. And so that was the beginning. <laughs> you maybe you you kind of just answered what I was going to ask next, but let me let me go ahead and ask this anyway. But what do you think is the value of a living history program at a place like Burnt Island? Yeah, it's those two factors of education, entertainment, but it's also real stories, okay? Everything we tell the public is real. Um, then it comes from the muses. And so I had a videographer um, the day they came ashore. Um, Willard was in a wheelchair. He was close to 80 at that time uh, with an oxygen tank. Um, and so, and the, his three sisters. And as they visited each part of the island, they continued to tell their stories and stories that I knew would fascinate the public. And so uh, that's what we scripted our program based on that, on their stories. Yeah, I, I recently interviewed uh, Katie Bryden, who was one of your early uh, living history performers. She was a, a joy to talk to, you know, her enthusiasm and everything. It made me think about how more places could, could make use of this kind of thing. But it's, I also thought maybe it's a little bit tricky because if you're going to do it, you kind of have to do it well. And you, you've done it really, really well at Burnt Island. You really have. Well, thank you. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners an idea of how the tours basically work, if you could describe what it's like from the time people board the boat in Booth Bay Harbor and go out to the island. Sure. The Balmy Day Cruises is the name of the company that transports uh, people, the groups out to Burnt Island. Um, the boat is called the Novelty. They arrive and the uh, folks spend two and a half hours on the island with us which some of them say, we think, oh my gosh, that's a lot of time, but they then are amazed that it's gone by so fast because they've enjoyed the program so much. When they come ashore, I have a little amphitheater that they seat themselves down to and we welcome them in, and introduce the program, tell them what the experience is going to be like, uh, break them into three groups, and then they head off uh, one group to the lighthouse, one group to the house, and one group go with the children and they visit the oil house, the boat house, and then that there's a rotation that occurs. So about every 20 minutes, they move from one station to another uh, until they've seen all three. And then they have the opportunity to visit the lantern room, climb the spiral stairs and go up, and the keeper will be up into the lantern room and explain to them the past versus the present. The other group uh, gets to visit when they get down with the house. We have the covered walkway, which is the passage that connects the house to the lighthouse. It's now been, it was boarded off when the Coast Guard automated, but uh, we use that passageway as a museum. So all of our architectural drawings and photographs are on display there. And I also have one section of a wall called the Wall of Keepers. So all of the lighthouse keepers, I think the oldest one I have on uh, is Jay Macabre, and he was there 1876 to 1880. And so I tell a little bit about each one of those keepers um, there as well. 
And then the children also offer a guided tour. So if they want to go around the island, um, they can do that. And they come back and they, some of them just sit around, enjoy, relax. Um, and we also, of course, have a gift shop. So they get to visit that and help us out by buying a few Burn Island memorabilia. Right. Exit through the gift shop, right? Right. Yeah. The tours also incorporate the natural environment, and uh, that's obviously uh, an important part of Burnt Island itself. And it's very appropriate that the tours incorporate that, and uh, that gets to uh, use some of your personal background, of course. What are people uh, likely to see in the natural environment at Burnt Island? Well, first, it all depends on the stage of the tide, because, of course, at low tide, they're going to see a lot more than at high tide. But when that water has receded, um, rates at the peninsula where the lighthouse is located, there's wonderful tide pools down there. Um, And so uh, that's a great intertidal search that can take place. We don't usually take the public down there. We sometimes take a, a, um, a tub and we put a few of the things that they might find because we don't want anybody slipping down on the seaweed down there. So we incorporate it that way and show them what some of the living creatures are and some of the algae forms that are there. They continue on their walk, and we get to a place, there's a seawall where there's a berm of cobblestones between two other peninsulas on that south shore. So we talk about how, you know, the geology of the island when the rocks break up and then these pieces get caught between the peninsulas and they, it's just like um, a, a rock um, tumbler. You know, they just keep tossing and tossing until they become smooth cobblestones. And then as they walk the perimeter trail, we pass an osprey nest and go to a little couple of of places where they can see that western shore, which has just phenomenal geology there with the tipping of the stones, you know, the the bedrock there. Um, And then they come back through the woods a little bit where, you know, the old man's beard hangs from the trees, which is a pretty unique growth of islands, and then back into the meadow and back to to the buildings. They can also go down to the beach area. There's a gravel beach, and if it's low tide, there's a mud flat that's there too. So there's plenty of nature um, to observe and uh, experience. Uh, could you tell us about the nonprofit, the Keepers of Burnt Island Light, the nonprofit organization that supports the preservation of Burnt Island and the light station? They formed um, right from the beginning when I acquired Burnt Island. G. McKay was a retired teacher who had just moved to Booth Bay Harbor, and she saw it in the newspaper, and she called me, and she said, um, I just saw about the transfer of the lighthouse to to the state, and I'm interested in helping you. And I said, well, great. And she said, I said, she says, well, when would you like to see me? And I said, well, what are you doing now? And she said, well, nothing. I said, well, come on over. So we went over to Burnt Island and um, went on to the boat slip. And she was from New York. And the minute she stepped off onto the little walkway on the boat slip, she slipped and fell into the ocean. Mm. So her, I always say her baptism was that day. And her <laughs> baptism that day. And I said to her, 
would would you like to go back? You know, she was wet. This was like May, um, and she and she goes and she but she was laughing and uh, she said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm just fine. And I thought to myself, okay, this woman didn't complain. She laughed and she stayed the whole time and said, when can I come back? So I said, oh, I got to keep hold of her, and so I did. And so Jean has been my sidekick uh, for 22 years, and. In 2008 is when she and a bunch of the other local people, especially some of the people that were interpreters on the, on the, uh, for the program, for the Living History, they banded together and said, let's do a nonprofit because at least we can raise money in ways that the state cannot and, and take donations in the ways that the state cannot. And so they formed the Keepers of the Burn Island Light. They have been very helpful in all aspects, um, and there's nine board members uh, ranging from a retired contractor, a current contractor, a teacher, an attorney, some retirees, and we were fortunate enough to recruit the commanding officer of Station Booth Bay Harbor uh, for the Coast Guard, so Adam Smart is also part of our board. Yeah, they're amazing, um, and they help in endless ways. I'm sure. That's great. So are the keepers of Burnt Island Light uh, looking for new volunteers currently? Always, sure, always looking for, especially interpreters. Um, and we do love teachers, either summer teachers, retired teachers, people who know how to handle, you know, the people, the public, kids, uh, and teachers have a special knack. I mean, others can learn. Others are great also in their acting, as you saw from Katie Bryden when you spoke to her. Uh, she was a, a drama major, and so she did an excellent job. We also, every other Monday, I take out a group of gardeners uh, and just handy people. They don't have to be all master gardeners, but they do an amazing job of keeping the island mowed and weed whacked and planting gardens and all of that. And so, um, yeah, that's a, a source of people we're always looking for. And if people would like to support your efforts with a, a donation, is the best way to make a donation through the, the uh, Keepers of Burnt Island Light, the nonprofit? And kind of a part two to that question, is there anything particular going on right now, anything planned as far as uh, restoration that people can help support? Yes, absolutely. Um, and the Keepers uh, website is the best place to go. They have a donation button on there. Um, and it's, of course, www.keepersofburntislandlight.org. And our big, big project right now is the restoration of the lighthouse, which has never been done, and the exterior of the keeper's dwelling. We face, next year, it's bicentennial, so 200 years of service, and we are hoping to meet our goal. We're shy about $40,000 from it right now. Um, but it's going to be a full restoration where the lighthouse tower, all of the thorough seal and all of the coatings and everything will be removed, all repointed between the rubble stone and recoded. The lantern room is a mess. It's all rusted on the exterior. So all of that will be blasted and coated. Uh, new windows, new red windows in the lantern room, um, like exterior siding, historically correct windows, so all of that um, is what w awaits us this summer of 2020. So any 
anything, every little bit helps, will get us to that goal. And one thing I, I just want to mention that I was just thinking about, uh, you and I have uh, discussed this before, but Burnt Island Lighthouse, the tower itself, the lantern was, was changed in its history, right? But the, the tower is uh, the oldest unchanged lighthouse tower in Maine, 1821. Port, well, Portland Head Lighthouse is older except for the fact that it was raised in height. Uh, it actually uh, went up and down a couple of times in its history in height. So uh, because Portland Headlight, the tower itself, was changed a couple of times, Burnt Island Light qualifies as the oldest unchanged lighthouse tower. Again, we're not talking about the fact that the lantern was, was changed. but That's correct. Yeah. Yep. The, the tower uh-huh. itself is original. Right. Um, and it, it, the other little piece I also just want to put in there, Jeremy, is mm-hmm. when Portland Headlight was built, it was part of Massachusetts. Okay. Well, there's that um, too. Yeah. <laughs> No, but um, all in, in, in fun. Maine became a state in, it, this is the bicentennial year 2020. Right. So when, when Burnt Island uh, was built, it was actually the eighth station, to, uh, excuse me, I think it was the ninth station. Three of them were, were uh, funded at the same year of 1821, uh, but it was the ninth station to open up. But all two through eight have all been rebuilt completely, mm-hmm. with Portland having been altered. Okay, Elaine, I have one more question for you for bonus points. What for you have been the most fun and rewarding parts of your involvement with Burnt Island Light Station? Okay, well, there's so many. After 22 years, I have so many. Um, I'm going to say um, when I look at photographs of 1998 when I acquired Burnt Island and I look at it now, um, a, a building that was boarded up for 10 years, a building that really just sat there. It needed so much work, and it wasn't very pretty. And today, it's absolutely gorgeous. That, and meeting all of the former keepers who once served there, because I truly can relate to them. Um, and I'm also proud that this year, I surpassed the keeper with the longest tenure there, <laughs> which is William Stetson, was there for 21 years, and I'm on my 22nd this year. But I want to say, even though the buildings and everything was so beautiful, I think, to me, the most fun, I'll go with fun, is to be able to host school children and teachers there as part of overnight uh experiential learning opportunities that I give them are phenomenal. They are second to none. These kids get to live on this island. They get to explore all those habitats that I mentioned. They get to learn about this lighthouse and go up into the lantern room at nighttime, which to them is they are like amazed that they're in this lantern room and say, can people see us? Can they see us up here? Um, And then I take them to the water in the dark and we swish in the water to see the bioluminescence. I just, I can't tell you how exciting that is for them and for me. And so for me to impart my knowledge of the marine environment, of this historic site with them, um, is so much fun. And I look forward to having them every single year uh, enjoy this with me. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elaine Jones. You know, uh, you are a true lighthouse keeper, a true 21st century lighthouse keeper in the best sense of the, the term. And uh, I thank you and congratulate you on everything you've done for Burnt Island and for the lighthouse community and for the state of Maine, for the children and the public. And thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. Again, there will be no public tours at Burnt Island Light Station in 2020 because of the restoration work that's planned on the buildings this summer. Tours are expected to resume in 2021. Watch also for special events in 2021 commemorating the 200th anniversary of Burnt Island Light. Booth Bay Harbor is one of the most popular resort towns on the main coast. Apparently, the lighthouse on Burnt Island became a popular place for tourists to visit as far back as the late 1800s, and not all the keepers were happy about that. After his wife died, keeper James McCobb complained about the number of visitors on Sundays. He wrote in July 1879, quote, Have not of late opened the lighthouse to visitors on Sunday. Am of the opinion that they could come on some other day as well as Sunday, unquote. Many thanks to our guest, Elaine Jones of the Maine Department of Marine Resources. And thanks to all the staff, volunteers, members, and board of directors of the United States Lighthouse Society, its chapters and affiliates. To learn more about the U.S. Lighthouse Society, check out uslhs.org and the social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the most popular programs of the U.S. Lighthouse Society is the Lighthouse Passport Program, which provides enthusiasts the opportunity to help preserve lighthouses as well as a fun way to keep a pictorial history of their lighthouse adventures. Lighthouse passports are available through the USLHS website or at participating locations. The passport has spaces for 60 stamps. Small donations made by passport holders generate thousands of dollars for preservation projects. We devoted two episodes of this podcast to the passport program in April, and at that time we spoke with some of the top passport stamp collectors. Another one of the top Hall of Fame Lighthouse passport stamp collectors is Russ Catchy of Michigan. I recently spoke on the phone with Russ. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am on the phone with Russ Ketchy, who lives in or near Kalamazoo, Michigan, and is one of the uh, Hall of Fame U.S. Lighthouse Society passport stamp collectors. Thank you so much for joining me today, Russ. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Uh, let me start with a real basic question here. How did you get interested in lighthouses? And that's maybe a very obvious question since you live in the state that has the most lighthouses. That probably has something to do with how you got interested in lighthouses in the first place. It, it does. Early in my childhood, my parents uh, used to bring myself and my brother up to uh, Mackinac City to see the, the Mackinac Bridge and Fort Mitchell and Mackinac and, and uh, the old Mackinac Point Lighthouse. And that was kind of my first exposure to lighthouses. And then, you know, over time, that became kind of a, uh, like a repeated trip, so to speak, one that we did annually growing up and and then uh, later on, when I, you know, grew up, got married, had my own boys, the boys and I started traveling along the coast of the lakes and, and started uh, visiting some of the lighthouses. And that, that kind of triggered it uh, to get excited about it and to kind of, more or less, it's become my passion, so to speak. And then shortly after that, uh, my mother 
um, and father, and I'm sure it was mom that drove it, but uh, I got one of the uh, first Harbor Light lighthouses when they huh. started doing the collectibles, and and that really kind of kicked it into gear between the boys and I doing that, and then you know it seemed like every year there for about five years I'd get a new Harbor Lights, and um, and I started collecting them on my own as well. And then the passport program, of course, came along. I had I had no idea about that until I believe it was 1997. We were up at uh, Sandpoint Lighthouse in Escanaba, probably the only the second or third lighthouse that the boys and I had actually gotten uh, to go inside. And there was a an older lady in there, one of, one of the people working, you know, volunteers, and she asked me if I knew about the program, and I'm like, no, I had no idea. And she talked me into buying my first book. And uh, it took me probably 10 years or better to actually fill that first book. <laughs> I had it with me, and I just never remembered to take it out and get the stamp when we were at the lighthouse. And how many books have you completed now? If I'm remembering right, I believe I am on number 17 now. <laughs> wow, and you're right up at the top of the, the Hall of Fame list. So what makes the Passport Program so much fun for you? It, it's actually, it's almost like a souvenir or a keepsake, you know, of having been there. It's kind of a unique and neat way to, you know, make a donation to the lighthouse, you know, while you're there visiting, you know, talking to the staff where you're, you know, getting the stamp from and finding out what, you know, why they're there and basically why they're enjoying, you know, the lighthouse, so to speak. And from uh, several of those, I have... Uh, I've gotten invites to come and work and, you know, hang out with them and, and help them do what they do. And uh, at some point uh, later in life, I, I think that would be kind of a goal. Have you done most of your lighthouse traveling uh, on your own? Or have, you done, or have you done some of the U.S. Lighthouse Society's tours also? I have done uh, a few with um, Shepler's, um, which would be through... Uh, Glicka or the G-L-L-K-A, and got to meet Terry Pepper that way, and uh, Dick Mole was, I think, on the first cruise that we took, and, uh, you know, th the wealth of knowledge that those two men had was, was incredible, and, and to be able to talk to them and interact with them and, you know, and, and ask them questions about things that, you know, probably nobody else would have had an answer for was right. awesome. Yeah, just to for the people listening who might not know, the Glicka uh, is the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, which is one of the great lighthouse organizations in the country. And Dick Mole and Terry Pepper were both great authorities on Great Lakes Lighthouses. Terry Pepper recently passed away. It was just a really a tremendous authority on the on the Great Lakes Lighthouses. Russ, what would you say to you? What what is the the major value of the passport program for not so much for collectors but for lighthouse organizations themselves? What what do you think is the the greatest value of the program? Well, I find two. One is you know, and it's I, I find that not a lot of the the people that are working at the lighthouses know that there is a suggested you know donation of a dollar for the stamp. A lot of them just you know stamp the book and, and the people move on. But, you know, the idea behind it is, you know, for people to donate a little bit, you know, and every little bit goes a long ways. And, you know, as the passport stamp program go, grows and more people get involved in it, 
you know, it'll generate more money for, you know, the preservation of and the uh, fixing up of, you know, some of these lighthouses that are in, you know, real rough shape. The other part of it is I, uh, I've recently given my grandsons each a passport book. Two of them I just gave for Christmas and, and one I gave for the other grandson's birthday. And that, to me, hopefully ensures that another generation of people are going to be interested in and have a passion for, you know, lighthouses and their preservation and uh, keeping them around and enjoying the history, you know, that surrounds the lakes and the oceans and and the lighthouses and, and what they meant to, you know, us as a country and, and around the world as far as that goes. I hear a rumor that there may be a, a special children's version of the passport uh, in the pipeline. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be saying that publicly, but I, I do hear rumors of, <laughs> of that. So uh, I think it's a great idea. Do you, uh, and you've done obviously a lot of lighthouse traveling, and I'm wondering, do you have a favorite region of the United States for lighthouse traveling? Probably Lake Superior if I had to, you know, pick a specific site, just because a lot of those are very remote. Split Rock in Minnesota is mm. one of my favorites, knowing the history behind that and how it was built at the time. There were no roads going to it, so everything was brought in by ships and run up on a, a trolley set up up the hill uh, to the top of the rock face for them to build that. And it's, you know, knowing that it's just a, a great sight to see and, and spend time there and just, you know, admiring the view and, and, you know, knowing what it took to get that, you know, put together and, and where it is. Have you seen every lighthouse in the United States? Not yet. You pr- um, must be pretty close. Um, yeah, we're getting there. Um, I have a lot of the uh, the southern region uh, around the Gulf area and West Coast that are kind of my uh, weak spots. Yeah. You mentioned Split Rock being one of your favorites a minute ago, but is that your favorite lighthouse, or do you have a? Is there another lighthouse that stands out as your your absolute favorite uh, lighthouse? Pemaquid Point. Pemaquid Point. The view there is amazing, and that uh, that rock face ledge that's there is. I would consider pretty unique. Um, I, the first experience we had there was the first time I had seen anything like that. The recent visit back there again, I mean, it, it really hasn't changed much. It's just an amazing view, and you know, especially when you know if you're there on a on a day when the weather isn't ideal, and and to see you know the power of the water, mm-hmm. and uh, get a little understanding of you know, what these people went through when they lived there and, and, you know, if they had to go out on the water, what it was actually like. Oh, it's a unique and special place. It's right right near the top of my list, that's for sure. Well, Russ Ketchy, I really appreciate you speaking with me today, and I, I wish you uh, all the best and continued fun and success in your lighthouse travels. I thank you again for, for talking to me today. Thanks a lot, Russ. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me on the call, and, and I I enjoyed it. Many thanks to Russ Katchy. Again, to find out more about the Lighthouse Passport Program, go to the U.S. Lighthouse Society website at uslhs.org. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it by making a donation or becoming a member of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Members get a subscription to the quarterly journal, The Keeper's Log, and other benefits. 
Also, if you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review it. A shout out to everyone in the Friends of New England Lighthouses Facebook group, which now has more than 16,000 members. And also all the other online communities that support discussion of lighthouse photography and news. Thanks to everyone everywhere who works to preserve our historic lighthouses or any kind of history. As the great author John Steinbeck once said, quote, how will we know it's us without our past, unquote. We wish all the best to everyone in the Lighthouse community in these difficult days. As we record this, we don't know whether many of our lighthouses and museums will be able to open this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Things will eventually get back to normal. Until then, keep supporting each other, be careful, and stay healthy. As always, thanks for listening, and... Keep a good light. Thank you.